welcome to the Cincy Slang and Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? You know what? I don't want to hear any of that good day and welcome today. Not not today. We're not getting it today. No one's getting it. This is absolute insanity. I cannot believe what just happened. Uh, I'm so angry that it is not, it is not a great day to be a Bearcat fan or a college, you know what? It is a great day to be a Bearcat fan. It is not a great day to be a fan of college football in general. It's always a great day to be a Bearcat fan, Hummer. This is not about being a Bearcat fan. This is about college football. This is about the corruption, the fundamental flaw of college football. This is about being a football program that's not in one of the prestige conferences that the the college football playoff committee puts value in, puts stock in. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you know at this point, the Cincinnati Bearcats were passed in the college football playoff rankings by Iowa State. This is an Iowa State team that has two losses this season, one of which was to Louisiana University. That's right. The Bearcats have had two weeks off of football now, one because of a bye week, but the second one, or the second one was a bye week. The first one was because of COVID. And because of that, they have been passed in the rankings by Iowa State. Infinitely frustrating. It's why college football, it's why I've had a hard time forever just finding a love and passion for the sport because it's not meant for everybody. It's meant for the power programs. It's meant for Clemson. It's meant for Alabama. It's meant for the Big Ten. You're, you're not welcome at the party. And that's, what they're, that's the message they're sending by pushing Iowa State, a two-loss team, above the Cincinnati Bearcats. Look, by my calculations, if Iowa State's ahead of us, just put us out of misery and put us down at number 16 where you truly think we belong. If you want to go count down to all the teams we get to before we have your first three-loss Big Five Power Five team, that would put us at number 16. Coastal Carolina, you know what? Let's just take them out of the rankings altogether. What was the point of even moving them up to number 13? Look, at the end of the day, this is this seems like it's their backup plan to, to make sure they're going to say, no way in heck are we putting Cincinnati in the playoffs because I think they're staring at a situation where Ohio State is in the – balance tipping point where they may not get in they're also looking at a realistic possibility that notre dame does beat clemson for a second time clemson no longer in but how do you even now keep clemson out because if you're willing to put a two loss iowa state team in why aren't you willing to put a two loss clemson team in well it's not even about getting iowa state in specifically um it's about keeping it's, us it's out. about it's, it's about pushing the bearcats down it's about keeping the group of five out but by pushing Iowa State to this level, putting them on a pedestal, when they play in the Big 12 championship game, let's say they play Oklahoma, it makes that win that much more important. And look, Oklahoma's going to end up passing us. Georgia is probably going to end up passing us. That's what I said. Miami, why aren't they? Why Miami aren't is they probably going to end up passing us. Honestly, we're going to see. What the I'm asking. Why aren't they already past us? If you're willing to do this Ohio or Iowa State today, why the heck isn't everybody else jumping us? It's arbitrary. It's what's wrong with college sports is that there's so much quantitative or yeah, quantitative, qualitative. It's a qualitative approach to it. And I get it. There's no real way of getting around that. But the fact that you put these, some of these teams on a pedestal, 
for no reason. Iowa State, Iowa State has such a massive following that they're just going to. It's not, it's not about Iowa State, though. It really is not about Iowa State. It's about the conference. It's about the Big 12. It's about it's about it's a power play to keep power conferences above the Bearcats, above G5 programs. I putting Iowa State into the rankings this high all of the sudden inserts the Big 12 into the conversation for playoff consideration. That's what this is about. It's about nothing else. It's just about it's a power move for the power five. I am curious if they if, if there is a sense of punishment as well for us missing two games because we're not Clemson. Clemson gets a pass if they get to, to pass on some game. Ohio State, they get the biggest pass in the world. Don't play this year, Ohio State. We'll still put you in the playoffs. We'll keep you in the conversation all season, even if you only play five games. It's cool. We lose two games. We, we don't lose, sorry. We don't play two games. All of a sudden, we're forgotten. It's what have you done for me lately? It's not your whole body of work. It's you haven't played in two weeks. Oh, you're not going to play this week. We're punishing you. We're going to move you down a spot. We're going to give you zero yeah. shot because you're only going to play nine games this year. It's it's complete BS. The Bearcats are already nine and zero. I've got that right, right? Eight no, eight no. They should have been nine and zero, but okay. we had to cancel Temple. Then we should have been ten and zero because we we That's should right. have beat okay. Tulsa again. Bearcats you know are eight, they've played they've played eight games though undefeated already. Plenty of impressive victories. Strength of schedule got better by missing the Temple game. Like the Temple game wasn't going to do anything for us. So if you think about what we've actually missed, we've had a bye week. And then we didn't play Temple, who's been ravaged by COVID and is not going to put up a fight at all. It's it's a it's a true it's a travesty. It's disappointing. It really it makes you question why you why you care, right? Like you, I love the Cincinnati Bearcats football team. I love what Des Ritter is. Sorry, I love what Des Ritter has been about. I love Fickle. I love the energy around the program. I love rooting for the team. But good lord, the 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 framework with which we have to compete and the false hope that you're given uh, as a, as a G five team is just, it's a joke and it's never been more of a joke than it is this year. One thing that's kind of like calming or, or at least, I don't know, small level of silver lining here is I feel like the, the, the crowd of talking heads that are seeing or are acknowledging that this is a travesty, uh, that's what's happening. I, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of people of, you know, ESPN types getting out there and being vocal about why is Iowa state jumping the Bearcats? At least, I mean, that's not like, you know, it's still a, a second place trophy, but you know, that's something that we're going to need happen more and more in the future. There's going to need to be outrage over this. Like, how do you hold this, this, who is on the playoff committee? How do you hold them accountable to their decisions and who the heck is actually paying their salaries? Is this an actual independent party or are they actually being paid by the power five conferences to make sure that the little guys stay down? <laughs> there was something about the way that you said, who the hell is paying their salaries? It made me think of, I need to talk to your manager. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Karen and I need to talk to your manager. <laughs> we need to talk to the play college football playoff committee's manager. Who, who do we speak to? I mean, look, there is, it's, it's, it's funny that the playoff system was created to avoid this kind of like infighting of who should be in a championship game, right? What the BCS argument, as we always called it. And we're right back to where we started. We're right back into this. This is just the BCS argument over again, all over again. But worse. Worse. But worse because 
You're fighting over you're fighting over the West crumbs. Yeah, well, the bowl games have been devalued, right? Like outside of the playoff games, nothing else really feels like it matters. And you kind of alluded to it during the last podcast, but like the PapaJohns.com bowl didn't mean much when we were in college. It sure as hell doesn't mean anything now. The only thing it was fun, like the only thing those are fun for, honestly, is if and you can't travel right now, so it's actually completely it's worthless. The trip, yeah, it's, it's the, the experience. trip itself. It's going. You get to go, maybe explore somewhere. Maybe that's kind of cool. Uh, Louisville or Birmingham, wherever that one was. That one was in Birmingham. I, I forgot to correct you last time, but yeah, it was in Birmingham. Alabama. I'm thinking PapaJohns.com because of Louisville and Papa John's and Yum Center. So, it, forgive me. But the other thing that is just absolutely irritating the the, the living jeebs out of me is these Tulsa fans who are trying to claim that Cincinnati canceled this game twice. Excuse me. You guys were the originators of COVID in college football. <laughs> uh, I won't go as far as to blame Tulsa for our COVID struggles. Uh, I what I mean by that is to blame, in, but... in our conference, they were the first one that had an issue and had okay. to have games rescheduled because of it. I'm not putting blame on them. I'm saying it's like, check your history check your books i do think this was this is where i will eat into conspiracy theories here i do think this was actually an effort by the aac to preserve the integrity of the championship game i don't right, think but it i don't know that to... i mean you're saying conspiracy and clearly i mean it's it's conspiratorial in the sense that the american athletic conference is involved but it's clearly being done within the framework of covid being a thing yeah cincinnati having a, a covid outbreak currently coming out of it but they're not past it at this point, and why risk it? Why play the game against Tulsa that's going to prove that Tulsa and Cincinnati need to play the next week as well? That We, we already know where this is heading, so preserve the championship. We're both playing next week. Play the championship, championship game. game. That's really all that matters. Now, it is, it's a shame that Cincinnati lost two – we lost two games, right? Like, for a program like Cincinnati, being G5 – it would have been nice to just continue continually beating teams down week after week, no break, staying fresh in everybody's mind. It does make it harder to downgrade us at that point. But again, this isn't our fault. It's not the victim's fault in this case. We're the victim. We did nothing to deserve to be moved down from seven to eight. And it really is just a massive indictment on the fraudulence that is college football. And, and here's, here's the other thing that's kind of been e- eating me, eating at me the past couple of days. Cause this all started with, uh, oh, I saw some comments with the Xavier game. Oh, play us in January and the results different because, you know, we presume we would have played some games and got gotten more better. Um, I don't like that theory. I don't like that thought process because at the same time, your other school is going to get to play all season, get their stuff down, figure out what's best for their team. That's fine. But when people are taking that too, I saw the comments saying, well, it just, it just sucks that this is the year, you know, this, the year that UC was uh, finished third or was three in the nation. We didn't have a playoff. Uh, You know, it was, it was the championship. It was the BCS games. Uh, This year it happens to be COVID. I'm actually not convinced the Bearcats are actually ranked this high. Just seeing how the committee is dealing with this now, I don't think we're ranked this high if we have a full season and non COVID because you have, we have teams that were a preseason ranked much higher than us. USC being one of them, they could have been very, very good. They could have had an undefeated, uh, undefeated run at this point. Northwestern has proven to be very, very good. They could have been a one-loss team in the Big Ten up, up until this point. 
you know, there's a lot of things that, that could have happened that maybe don't necessarily put us in this position. I just, I'm, I don't like the, but we knew that like, Emmer. like we, we actually talked about that on the podcast. The fact that COVID-19 we were beneficiaries us. of that by starting out the season ranked higher than maybe we otherwise would have. Exactly. That's why it was a massive deal that we got to, I think number six in the country in the coaches poll in October. I mean, it was, it was obscene how high we were climbing and how fast and with the PAC 12 coming back with the big 10 starting to play some games that gave college football, all the excuses and ammunition they needed to say, Whoa, 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 pump the brakes. This is not going to be a thing. We're not putting you in as our fourth team. We are not having the university of Cincinnati as team number four on the college football playoff. Trust us. We're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that's not happening. Even if it's justifying Iowa state as team number seven, passing up the eight, no Bearcats by saying, well, we're it's, it's, it's more of a result of the committee being impressed by the way Iowa state has played in recent weeks. That's what Gary Barta, the college CFP selection committee chair said about pushing Iowa state above the Bearcats. So it's, okay. what have you so done it doesn't for matter me? how trash they were at the beginning, losing Louisiana. That didn't matter. Those games didn't matter. Joke. It's a hundred. That is the biggest. That is, that is what is wrong with college football. The seasons are so short to begin with. It can't be a, what have you done for me lately? It can't, nope. it can't, it, that's not how it should be. This it's isn't seeding in the college basketball tournament. This is not what that is. And, and actually college basketball has attempted to come up with a system attempted. albeit it's not perfect, but at least they're trying to do something about it where they take a little bit out of, of that. What have you done for me lately out of it with the net rankings? College football appears to be doing nothing to stop this qualitative approach to ranking teams. It's just, it's brutal Hummer. I just can't, it's so discouraging. Um, All we can do if, if if I'm making a recommendation to the Cincinnati fan base, it's just rally around this team, give them as much undying support as possible and, and fight like hell to let, the college football committee, the college football landscape, anybody who's listening, letting them know that, look, we know this is wrong. We know what you did. We're like the the defensive coordinator. And remember the Titans. I know what you did. I know what you did. We're not going to forget. Why am I talking with a vague Irish accent? Let's leave <laughs> I, my, it there. Hummer. Let's my advice, my advice would be this. Watch the, watch the cats games, watch only the cats games. If you're for some reason, uh, another you know, group of five supporter or whatever, and you're listening to our podcast, watch only your team's games. Don't watch any of the other games. And then right around the time you feel the need to turn on some, co- some college football, the NBA is going to be starting up. Watch some beautiful NBA being played. You don't played. need NBA. We got college basketball. We got firm. <laughs> I'm saying when you, when you just need more content in your life, because there's a sport missing or it's, it's still there, but it's corrupt and you don't want to support it. Just go ahead and watch some NBA, some college basketball, and just overload your senses with hoops. Let's join. Let's get Charlie Goldsmith on the line and talk to him for a bit. We are now joined by Charlie Goldsmith, sports reporter at the Cincinnati Enquirer. I'm already overthinking the title there, Charlie, but thank you very much. For joining the Cincy Slang and Bearcat podcast today. 
we had a 20 second conversation before this podcast about if it was the Inquirer, the Cincinnati Inquirer, but we got it all in there. We're set. Now, guys, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man, we, we appreciate you joining us. When I originally set this up, I said, you know, we'll probably focus on hoops. At the time, Tulsa, the Tulsa game was going to be played, but we would touch on things there. We're not a big preview podcast. Um, since then, the Tulsa game has been canceled. And then as of tonight, this is being recorded on Tuesday night, the Bearcats were passed in the college football playoff rankings by Iowa State a team that Hummer and I just got done ranting and raving about has two losses, one of which was at home to Louisiana. How do you, how do you think the Bearcats football staff is feeling right now, Charlie? So the biggest takeaway when we saw the Bearcats beat teams like Houston and ECU, and there were a couple other blowout wins that UC had something we would ask Luke Fickle about was the concept of style points. And he admitted that those might matter in the big picture, but to him, he's just looking to win. He'll even squeak out a victory like the Bearcats did against UCF. Well, tonight, uh, it, it showed that style points matter to the selection committee. Because just on paper, you know, that, that loss that, um, that Iowa State has to uh, Louisiana, stuff like that blemishes their resume. But what uh, in the, the post reveal uh, remarks that the selection committee made, what they said was they were that impressed by the quality and the level of Iowa State's production right now. So you can't help think that if UC were out here, you know, maybe beating Temple by 30, <clears throat> or maybe even if they were able to get a 21 point win over a team like Tulsa, if they could have had those opportunities, that would have been their chance to hold serve. So my biggest takeaway tonight is that style points matter a lot more than we thought. And who knows, UC might have, you know, might still have been able to have accomplished that. But for a team like the Bearcats, who faces an uphill climb in the playoff selection process because of their conference, you know, missing games hurts because you don't get to win by 21, 28 when you don't play. I think that's fair. Um to an extent, right? Like I, if you look at Iowa state's recent games, they have blown out teams. I don't know that it is so much about the style points being the primary takeaway though. What I wonder is, I mean, if you're cynical, if you're, if you're, a, if you're a fan of the Cincinnati Bearcats, you follow a G five program, you're, you're cynical about this entire process. Cause we know the history of it. There's not a lot of, there's no precedent for inclusion for a team like Cincinnati. Um, and generally speaking, we always get the short end of the stick. I think what's interesting is it, it kind of feels like a, a strategic play in the sense of elevating the big 12, right? All of a sudden the big 12 is now in the conversation sort of as a fallback plan, you know, Hey, if, if something gets weird with Ohio state, they're just not playing enough games or we don't want to have a and M play Alabama again. Uh, can we, can we squeeze in an Iowa state or really in Oklahoma? Do you, do you see any validity in that? I think that every selection committee literally is different, is composed of different individuals with different priorities and different criteria that they use. Like I mentioned, it will always be an uphill climb for a group of five team to, to make it to the college football playoff. Again, my biggest takeaway today was that the way you look on the field especially matters to this selection committee. And also whether or not you're able to play. Obviously, Ohio State's kind of in a different ballpark. But again, I it's kind of that lingering question I have. What if UC had been playing and had been beating 
Temple and Tulsa the way they had beaten a really good Houston team or a really good SMU team? What if that happened? In reality, though, we're really saying they would have had to, they would have had a chance to beat Temple, right? Like they, they could have played Temple, then they had the bye week. And now this week they would have played Tulsa. Now, I don't know well, if they're factoring. Originally, the Tulsa game was on December 5th. Just putting that True. Out. That's a good point. That's a good point. Originally, well, originally it was back in October, October yeah. 17th. But you're right. So after the reschedule, it would have been December 5th. Got pushed back a week. The thing, I just, I, can't, I, I think, I think it's a total cop out from the playoff committee because they're saying, I mean, fine style points, but what about substance points? What about not dropping two games? Right. And I just think it's hard to get behind. Like, this is why college football is such a challenge for me. And I think Bearcat fans in general, because it just feels exclusionary. It feels like if you're not ABC team, you might as well pack up and go home. Like, don't, you don't need to be here. Well, um, one of the, yeah. One of the things I put, we were, we were talking about earlier, like if are you're, you're for the sake of arguing here, you're, you're jumping Iowa state on us with Oklahoma beats Iowa state next game. Why isn't Oklahoma then already ahead of us? What's where, where's, where's the formality here? You know, and that's where I think you can see through exactly what they're trying to accomplish in my mind. It's all right. We know that Clemson or Notre Dame is going to lose a game at this point. Do you really want to have two of these ACC teams in there? Maybe they do. I think that's probably their ideal is I think they would rather Clemson beat Notre Dame have two, one loss ACC teams in there. Ohio state gets dropped out because they just haven't played enough games. Like Coomer's mentioning with the Texas A&M, all of a sudden it's looking like, well, if we don't move Cincinnati down and Florida loses to Bama, well, what do we do? What do we do? We're actually at this crossroads of, okay, who is actually getting, who, who is actually getting in Cincinnati goes, they win their conference. They also win against another ranked opponent at this point. Tulsa will be ranked again. It's a, they're looking at a real possibility to have to put us in by putting Iowa state in. It's literally saying, look, here's the stop sign power five. You're not getting in. It's not going to happen no matter what. We're not going to allow it. Uh, we're, we're just, this is, this is it. It's either, you know, that, that's the end of the line. And that's how, that's how I'm interpreting what they're, what they're doing. Style points. You know, I, I get that argument too. Where's the style points in beating uh, 18th ranked Oklahoma at the time by seven points, you know? Well, when, style points gave them the excuse though. Like I, I do right. agree, like style points gave them the ammunition they really wanted. Cause I think me and Hummer being fairly cynical um, and I mean that in the sense, like, I think it's totally fair what we're saying, but I also think without crushing West Virginia, without crushing Kansas state, the committee really like, you just couldn't pull it off. I it's already brazen in what they just did, but by having the blowouts, I guess it, in some weird distorted way, it gives them ammunition. Right. And the, but the teams, they blew out. That's what I'm talking about. Like, all right, we blew out ECU 55, 17. They like, would say that about every one of our victories unfairly, but that's what they would say. Right. And then we blew out an SMU team who at the time was ranked number 16. Like, okay, you barely beat Texas at that point. Same rank as Houston was or SMU. I'm pulling up the quote. Um, the college football player chair, Jerry Barter was asked specifically about why I would say jump Cincinnati. He said, quote, they're in first place in the conference. So as you see, um, but they, they've beaten two top 20 teams in Oklahoma and Texas. They've been building through the course of the year. He, then he said two specific points. They came out strong against West Virginia. They have the nation's leading rusher. So I, I think, again, that, that can be the ammunition that the college football playoff committee is using as criteria this year. I completely understand where you guys are coming from. I, I think the way you guys are feeling, if I was a University of Cincinnati football player, I'm thinking, what else could I have done? Um, a different Nothing. conversation. 
I'm Ro- I'm Robin right now. I'm talking directly to the football team. I'm Robin Williams. We're in Goodwill Hunting. I'm wrapping you around my uh, around your shoulders, and I'm saying it's not your fault. It's and not that, your fault. It's not your fault. That prompts a different conversation about the flaws of a 14 playoff system. Yeah, and a playoff system that um, and, and if it did expand a playoff system that that wouldn't have certain uh, certain barriers for entry or certain you know pl- uh, opportunities for entry for a team in a conference like Cincinnati. Um, again, the first thing that the college football playoff committee chair said is they're in first place in the big 12, that, that carries weight. And as long as those conference designations are, are able to, to carry weight, uh, in the way that they do, then, you know, it shows that, you know, at the end of the day this year, even probably like Florida is not going to make the playoff. One of those ACC teams might not make the playoff. There are just too many spots right now for the amount of quality teams that are in college football and just not enough opportunities. Here, here, sir. So let's kind of pivot from this because I, I, I definitely don't want to make it feel like we're attacking you. You are not the enemy here. Other G5 programs are not the enemy. The college football establishment, they're the enemy. Here's what I want to say now, though. I, want to, I kind of want to ask you about the Tulsa cancellation. So this was a decision that apparently was made by the American Athletic Conference. What have you gathered about that decision? You know, was it, was it as simple as Cincinnati doesn't have their COVID situation under control, or is it more of a situation saying, hey, these guys are playing each other in the championship in a week anyway. Why are we going to risk furthering this outbreak when this game's happening regardless? So the only way that I can answer that question is by explaining what the UC camp has told us. Um, What John Cunningham said today was that, again, this decision was made by the AAC that since they, uh, the Bearcats traveled to Orlando, there were increased number of positive cases among the student athletes, coaches, and staff. And the Bearcats really haven't been able to practice um, since then, but because of these, because of, you know, what they were dealing with. Um, For example, you know, theoretically, the Bearcats could have added a game on December 5th. That was something before the Temple cancellation. That was something that, you know, was being discussed among media members. That's what the rumor, uh, yeah, that was the rumor. That was where the the rumor was at. Um, Clearly that wasn't a possibility because of, you know, that that seemed to be a ramification of the the cancellation of the game against Temple. And then following up this week, the Bearcats weren't able, or the Bearcats weren't able to be in a position where it would even be a normal game week for them because of, uh, the COVID numbers they have had recently. Um, so as a result, you know, I think Luke Fickle just said it plainly today. I want to play. That's, that's who I am as a coach. And I think that mindset carries across the athletic department, um, from the head coach, the real voice of UC athletics right now, because of the success he's having. And, I, I do think that it sets up a great opportunity in the AC championship game, but I don't think that was the intent. Yeah. I, I think there's, there's a lot of weird like conspiracies and accusations floating around with this game. And I, I, I think it's pretty simple. I think the simple answer is that COVID as it has with teams across the country and, and life in general has gotten in the way. And um, you know, I, I do think there's calculated decisions though, right? Like it, it makes sense to not, take the risk of having these teams play back to back when, I mean, they're going to play in the championship game the next week. So uh, prudent decision-making, I imagine. Unfortunate, like you said before, I don't think we should have to continue curb stomping awful temple teams to, to hold our spot in the college football ranking, but the reality of being a G five team crushing teams does not hurt. Any victory would have helped and, and continued to help the case. 
Hummer, do you have any other uh, final points on football you want to ask Charlie about? Or are you ready to get to basketball? I'm chomping at the bit. Here. It just appears that UCF is getting their revenge. Uh, they've, they've given us the COVID. Uh, it's spreading through the team. Because now you got me thinking about like the hypotheticals. We just saw what a victory over BYU did for Coastal Carolina. You know, Jumping them, I think they were number 13 in the rankings this week. So hypothetically, had we been in a position to play like BYU and do what Coastal Carolina did, except destroy them by even more, uh, would that have actually vaulted us like we said it would, or would it have been been a hamper to them? Uh, you know, so it's we're now back into hypotheticals for college football, uh, which I guess is part of the allure to it. But I'm ready to get into basketball. At least there's some momentum there. <laughs> before, before we transition to, to basketball, let me just conclude by saying making a New Year's bowl game, one of the big bowls is a huge accomplishment for UC. And I don't think that despite, you know, the negative reaction you guys might be having about the college football playoff conversation, you know, those two Brian Kelly teams that made it are the crowning accomplishments for UC football and probably for UC sports over the last 20 years, considering the way the basketball team has done in the NCAA tournament, not advancing to elite eights and final fours. This is, these are crowning accomplishments for UC. It's funny. It takes me back. I remember John Cunningham's introductory press conference. Um, I asked something about being in the group of uh, being in the AAC and what, what his opinion on that was going in. And he said, man, UC just has to celebrate their championships more. Um, you know, UC won their division last year. And he said, that's something they should have celebrated more. Um, if this year UC wins the AAC for the first time ever and uh, makes it to a, to a power, you know, one of those major bowl games for the first time ever as a group of five school, technically, um, and makes it to one of those bowl games for the first time in 10 years. That is a crowning accomplishment for the athletic department. Uh, great point, Charlie. Great point. And it's all, it's a snowball effect. We see what Luke Fickle's doing in recruiting. There's so many reasons to be excited about UC football. Uh, just before you came on, we were saying that it is important to remember that there's still no reason to kind of back off the support for the team, like double down on it. If anything, like use the chip on our shoulder to get more behind a team that is, that is dominating their opponents is racking up style points. Hasn't been able to do so recently, but they're going to get back on the field in the championship game against Tulsa. And I suspect they're going to continue proving themselves. So that new year six bowl game, I mean, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's a huge accomplishment. And it's probably going to be a national stage for the Bearcats to go up against a power team. And we'll and it's a measuring stick, right? Like it's a chance to prove yourself against one of the best, um, you know, not one of the top four, but certainly one of the best. And I think, um, I know Luke Fickle is going to hang their hat on that, right? Like Luke Fickle and Marcus Freeman are going to be leveraging that opportunity and the short end of the stick that they're getting right now to say, look guys, let's, let's get it. Hey, if UCF can crown themselves national champions, there's no reason why we can't either. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Charlie, let's get into some basketball talk. Bearcats are one and one. Last time I talked to Keith Jenkins from the Enquirer, your, your teammate over there, it was we had played no games. There was it was only speculation. It's been pretty quiet overall. Play a game against Lipscomb that was just a little bit funky, but it's a first game. Lipscomb's a team that ran the Princeton offense, uh, threw out some zone defenses that that Brandon wasn't necessarily expecting. As a as a Cincinnati fan, we joke hadn't quite installed that zone offense in a similar fashion to last year. And then they play a game against Xavier that was extremely competitive, very, you know, just one of those like all-time classic crosstown shootouts, but then completely fizzled out in the last seven minutes of the game. 
I read your article from that Xavier game, kind of recapping the fact that uh, the Bearcats are going to go as far as Keith Williams takes them. And I, what caught my attention was, you know, I look at it as a team that's very democratic in their approach. Like there's just a lot of really solid guys, but not necessarily like a true alpha in the sense of Jaron Cumberland. But based on quotes you had in there from David DeJulius, it really does seem like not only not only Brandon and maybe the fan base, but the players might believe that Keith Williams is the guy, is the driving force behind the team. That's how it felt. Um, let's start with the game against Lipscomb. I think, you know, there was the zone defense, there was the Princeton offense, but not having Keith Williams uh, because of foul trouble for most of that game, I think threw a huge wrinkle in what UC was trying to do. Funneling off that, going into the game against Xavier, Williams scores UC's first seven points. He, because of his length and athleticism, he's a very easy, you know, mismatch target offensively. He's going to have a mismatch in a lot of matchups, and he's a more physical player than Paul Scruggs, who opened the game on him. Um, as a result, UC found him, and UC got him going, and UC prioritized him in the offense. Then down the stretch, they did the same thing. Um, Brandon, I thought it was interesting. He said he allowed Keith to play through some mistakes, and he's earned that. So Keith Williams, the way, how I counted it, had five of the last nine chances for UC in the game. No one else had more than two. So again, that shows um, where he falls in the pecking order. Keith Williams didn't convert those. He went scoreless in the last four minutes. But Keith Williams, again, has a track record, you know, some down the stretch last season. He's played well against Xavier for two consecutive years. Keith Williams has a long history of scoring um, and scoring in big moments for UC. This year, that's even more important considering, you know, who they've lost in Jaron Cumberland um, and the surrounding talent. So after the Xavier game, there's no reason to be concerned about Keith. I just thought it was interesting to observe that. All right, now we know what he's going to look like. So one thing I, I am wondering about, though, and it's early, numbers aren't necessarily trends at this point, but and they're just, but, but they are interesting to look at, right? Um what you notice is that Keith Williams' usage right now is is rivaling that of Jaron Cumberland, which if I was coming into the season, I simply wouldn't have expected based on the fact that that's not his game. You know, he's he's never really been a creator for others. He, he's a scoring, he's an opportunistic scorer. He's a guy who can get athletic offensive rebounds. He can slash well. I mean, we saw against Xavier, he was beating his man consistently, even if he wasn't finishing at the rim. Um so I do wonder, you know, based on conversations you've, you've had with Brandon or comments you've heard in the media, do you foresee a situation where Brandon wants to pivot away from such a high usage rate from Keith Williams and maybe putting more of the focus and more of the creation on David DeJulius, who so far has been extremely sound with the basketball, no turnovers, creating for others and finishing with nice, nice shots inside. So here's what I'll say. <clears throat> Keith Williams and Jaron Cumberland are – completely different players who are being used or who have been used in completely different ways. Jaron Cumberland often, for better or for worse, slowed the offense down last season. And again, he had that track record and credibility as a one-on-one -on -one scorer. So sometimes, and rightfully so, Brandon knew that UC's best offense would be slowing the game down and getting Cumberland the ball. Look, what Keith did against Xavier was often quick hits. He had a couple in transition. UC liked to run a play against Xavier where Williams cut um, after running down half court they kind of set a down screen for Williams down right kind of under the basket. Williams would pop out on the wing, one jab, step, and go. He would, he would be gone, going to the basket. They ran that, I think, twice down the stretch and then on the first play of the game. 
he's not pounding the ball. I think Keith Williams rarely dribbles purposelessly. He's always going somewhere. Um, so as a result, you know, Keith can take a number of shots, but he's not shaping. <clears throat> he's not. I guess he's not, I'll say that he's not shaping the offense as much as Cumberland did. They can have the same usage, but there's still more opportunities for guys like David Julius, who's playing a huge role. There's still more opportunities for guys like Chris Vogue, who has struggled so far, but who will get chances. More opportunities for guys like Ivanowskis. Um, Mike Adams-Woods, who was a star against Lipscomb. There are going, it, it will be a more democratic offense, even if Keith Williams is taking a similar amount of possessions. Yeah, I think that's, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Like he's definitely not, having Keith Williams bring up the ball, pound it. And it's, it's not running through him. It, I just thought it, I did find it very telling that it seems like the team is bought into, to using him in a way that's just making sure he stays engaged. And honestly, that's probably the fact that Keith Williams, if he did have one challenge over the years, it's just been staying completely engaged in the game. And I imagine they're hoping staying engaged offensively is going to translate to the defensive end. Cause I would say that is where he struggled mightily in that, in that game against Xavier was, consistently getting beat off the dribble uh, by Scruggs. And there's just not a lot of rim protection from the Bearcats, which will take me to my next topic, which is Chris Vote. Um, much maligned in terms of how the perception, I think you love him or you hate him, it seems like in the fan base. Um, I, I'm able to see more of the positive. I will say, though, he for for someone who is as big as Chris Vote is, defense, defensive rebounding has always been a bit of a struggle John Brandon seemed to express some frustration with his rebound volume against Xavier. Was that more on the offensive side, though? First of all, I think that we can have a conversation about the kind of season Chris Vogue's having. I think he's a good player who has struggled some this year. The rebounding, though, Xavier didn't get an offensive rebound the entire second half. Exactly. So, um, based off Vogue's role in the offense, he's not always in a spot to get an offensive rebound. So, you know, a lot of times the best thing a center can do is box out defensively. So the rebounding thing wasn't as much concern for me. What was more of a concern, it was something I heard about heading into the shootout. This is going to be a huge opportunity for, for Vogue uh, facing a Xavier team whose center, technically Zach Fremantle, isn't a, a physical banger inside and whose primary and who the, the player who Xavier matched up primarily was Jason Carter, who Vogue has a huge size advantage over. And Carter also hasn't been excellent against big matchups. Carter started at the three last year for Xavier. Um, next to Fremantle and Tyreek Jones. You know, Vogue didn't influence the game um, as much as I expected him to. Xavier was prepared in being physical in the post, and it worked. But I will say this, you know, heading into the season, John Brandon said that Chris Vogue will be a guy that UC turns to down the stretch. Chris Vogue, I think, is the reason that UC pulled, the biggest reason that UC pulled away from Lipscomb in the season opener. The way he controlled the offensive glass, the way he had dunks, and the way he finished in, the, in that last eight-minute stretch. he, I still think he's UC's probably third best player. And so, again, while, while it wasn't his best game against Xavier, you need your third best player. You need someone who, who probably is going to consistently be a double-digit scorer. You know, you're not going to turn away from him at this point. I don't know if we're going to turn away from him. I certainly don't think so. What I was, what I've been kind of spitballing on is with vote right now, the pairing right votes getting, he's leading the team in minutes. So John Brandon believes in Chris vote and he's largely pairing him with, with Rappalus Ivanowskis, who's an elite defensive rebounder. And I agree with you, the offensive rebounding for other teams against UC so far has been minimal. Now that could somewhat be 
the opponent. Lipscomb, I don't think, is an elite rebounding team. And you just described the Xavier Bigs. They're much more of uh, outside. They're not bangers. They're not going to crash the boards like Tyreek. What was his name last year? Tyreek Jones. Jones. Yeah. Uh, that I mean, that he was a beast on the boards, and and he did do some damage there. So I, I have a feeling that the pairing ha- is driven by the fact that Rappelis rebounds so well and Chris Vogt does a job boxing out, but he's not able to, to convert that into grabbing the board himself. I have wondered, though, they're both pretty slow afoot. Neither one of them is someone who can switch out on the perimeter and guard a, guard a wing or guard a, a big who can take it off the dribble. Do you see or have you heard any whispers of John Brandon playing with those, those matchups a little bit more in terms of how he pairs the front court together? I think it's a fascinating conversation. Um, Here's what we've seen. There was a stretch against Xavier where Vogue and DR and Mamadou DR were playing together for key minutes. But aside from that, you know, DR's minutes have, have gone down to start this season. The wild card, I think, is Tari Eason, who's already shown just to be an unbelievable athlete. I think he's pretty clearly UC's best rim protector. He had that one sweep block against Lipscomb. But, you know, Tari Eason's really struggled to finish. He's missed a couple baskets at the rim now. Um, there was a moment against Lipscomb where Tari allowed a rebound defensively. Brandon pulled him, and Eason didn't get back in for a long time after that. So, again, you, you got to play to your strengths, I think. Um, there haven't been as much as many opportunities for Eason and Diara so far, um, which I think is an indicator of how Brandon feels uh, about using the Vogue Ivanowski's front court and just hoping the strengths win out um, with that pairing. Against a long season, you know, we didn't expect Mamadou Diar to have that end of the year he did last year when he played the best basketball of his career. And that ended up being massive for the Bearcats, would be NCAA tournament hopes. So there's time, but I still expect Ivanowski and Vogue to be the most frequent pairing in the near term. Say one of the pairings I'm actually more interested to see is 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 if 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 rap is because I think the sixth position is also equally important in, in college basketball or basketball in general is that six man off the bench. And Jeremiah Davenport is who I think the wild card has been just in terms of his, his the, not only just energy, because I know we talk about these intangibles and momentum doesn't exist, but, you know, he, he does bring something off the court in, in terms of his energy brings. He's probably the best defender on the team at this point early on. Uh, I'm curious to see if they're either, if, if eventually we start seeing more of a starting combination where Rappelis is the sixth man off the bench and we're, we're starting with someone like a Jeremiah Davenport or, or even maybe going something with a mama do as a starting, as a starting, you know, where we're, we're really just looking for maybe that defense or that energy spark to keep us going early on. Uh, Cause I did notice at the end of that Xavier game too, I think it was around the seven minute mark. We were, I think up two, up four. Uh, and up we four, 62, 58 around 62. the seven minute mark. And we put the starting rotation back in and we just got absolutely manhandled in that front. We could just never seem to get an offense, offensive spark. We were letting Xavier penetrate. We, we were giving them a lot of open shots. And so I'm curious to see if that's something we actually see more of too is, is so I think Tari Eason, we saw it last year. Mike Adams would played his way to more minutes. You know, that that's what he did. I'm curious. I think we'll see that with Tari Eason as the season goes through. I think we'll see him play to more minutes but I would not be surprised if we see another game or two start off or kind of go that route if Jeremiah Davenport hasn't, hasn't played his way into, you know, at least, at least getting onto the court in a, in a higher usage type of fashion. Jeremiah Davenport has been the positive surprise of the season. I think in UC's rotation, when we had conversations kind of in the preseason, the names you would hear a lot were Zach Harvey, Mike Saunders, some of the Madsons Davenport, just being honest, was not, um, 
was not mentioned as much as those guys. Yet he played Davenport especially played a crucial role against Lipscomb. They they went small for a bit with Davenport at the four, and that lineup really worked. Davenport made some huge defensive plays, had that dunk in transition that turned around the game. And then I thought this was interesting too when um, I think I have this right when Chris Vogue fouled out against Xavier. I was kind of sitting right behind Mamadou Diara. Brandon made made eye contact with Mamadou and then turned to Davenport. And Davenport went in the game. Um, he was in there down the stretch. Um, and so, again, that that shows the faith and the confidence that John Brandon has. You know, the – the um, not the reasonable, but, the you know, when your five fouls out, the, the most likely move you're going to make is put your backup five in. Mm-hmm. But Brandon went with – Jeremiah Davenport. And I don't think that that shows anything about Mamadou at all. It's a different conversation. I think that shows how much in a time when, Z- when UC was trailing and needed that spark, I showed that. I, I think that showed how much faith John Brennan had in Davenport providing that spark compared to any other player on the bench. One thing Brennan's been consistent about since joining the Bearcats is, is I'm saying consistent, but frankly, he's been consistent about consistency. So he's looking, it seems like he's very much willing to lean on the guys where he knows exactly what he's getting. Micah Adams Woods' freshman year, is he, is he this rock star who's creating the you know, highlight plays? No, but he's extremely reliable on defense. He's, doing, he's rotating correctly. He'll knock down the occasional three-pointer, doesn't turn the ball over. What are we seeing this season? Guys like Zach Harvey, Mamadou Diara, both, I would say, very kind of high upside players who we have big hopes for you think of them being a bit more explosive, a bit more of the exciting play. Well, they hit the court. And you're not as sure. You're not so sure what you're going to get. One thing we can say about Jeremiah Davenport, you know, exactly what you're getting for better or worse. He can be a bit erratic at times with the ball, but you're getting the same level of confidence, energy, and, and defensive kind of flying around the court that, that I think Brandon leans on with that guy. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point with Mike Adams Woods. His consistency is what played him onto the court. I think that's what they love about Rapalus Ivanowskis too. I think that um, throughout the season, his minutes are going to stay steady because he's a veteran who has that experience. And it, again, is very consistent in what he does. Um, I'm fascinated by the way the rotation is right now. It's been mostly the starters. Uh, and then Jeremiah Davenport has been the only bench player who's had really consistent minutes in both games. Harvey played some big minutes against Lipscomb, played I think four minutes against Xavier. Diara didn't play as much in either game. Eason didn't play as much against Xavier. Um, you know, um, any indication? Let's talk about the guys who weren't getting minutes. Let me ask you about Harvey. If you want yeah. to chime in about Mamadou as well, I think we know with Mamadou. So let's start with Harvey. You know, four minutes and it was just in the first half against Xavier is pretty jarring, especially when you see that Mike Mike Saunders Jr. is off the court or on the off the bench before him. Um, you see guys like like Davenport getting better minutes. Harvey is, was a big recruit coming into the program, high expectations, has fully recovered from his injury problems of last season. What do you think is keeping him off the court at this point? Great question. I think that you have to look at the moments when those guys were subbed in as well. Um, I think against Xavier specifically, what happened was uh, Julius needed, a, needed a, a spurt out of the game and Mike Adams-Woods wasn't wasn't having, you know, as good of an all-around game as he did against Lipscomb. So Brandon turned to his point guard. Um, and then I think that because of Jeremiah Davenport's defensive prowess and, you know, that whole conversation uh, that he that we were just having, that took away from uh, Zach Harvey's minutes as well. And then lastly, just remembering this now, 
Um, when we asked Brandon post game, he said he gave more minutes to Keith Williams. Um, and that kind of took away from Zach Harvey's minutes as well. Um, Zach Harvey isn't a point guard right now. So that limits his positions to the two and the three. You know, Keith, I think, took out 32 minutes of that. Mike Adams Woods took out 20 some minutes. Um, Davenport took out 16 minutes. And you only have so many minutes. And that's one of the, you know, that's the one downside of having 11 players who are expecting to play. And actually, when two guys get back healthy, 13 players who, who probably have a real shot at playing time. That's the one downside. You can be matchup specific and not have as egalitarian of opportunities. But just this is the last thing I'll say on this. Brandon said that if you want a bigger opportunity, just play better. He's going to see what the, what the players are, are doing. He's not going to, you know, there's, there's nothing more to it. Um, there's nothing more to it than, than how they look in practice, the effort they put in. Um, and I think Harvey's minute, Harvey's lack of minutes against Xavier more of a testament to what he was seeing from Keith Williams, from Jeremiah Davenport, and from Mike Adams Woods and those other ones. It's funny you say that because I remember last year, I think that was his big comment to all the his. I think he gave advice to freshmen, is what he did. He said, if you're a freshman, you want to play, play defense. Um, which, which is actually that comment's been sticking out in my mind because that's where I also see Mike Saunders maybe earning a bigger role because behind Davenport, I think he was the second best defender on the court against Xavier, uh, at least in that particular game. He just he was tremendous on on ball defender. Um, so I'm really curious to see. And I was also kind of looking at the the minute projections. And man, if you weren't spot on, we basically got a six man rotation at the moment. <laughs> but uh, Tari Eason's right outside there as the seventh man at about 30% of the minutes. Jeremiah Davenport is that that six man off the bench at 37 and a half. But other than that, it's starters, 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 starters. Yeah. And we, we did a podcast episode where one of the questions we asked, we always do three burning questions. And one of them was who is the odd, who are the odd men out of the rotation? Because you know, it's going to be someone, someone's going to be disappointing with the lack of minutes because of the fact that there's too many guys on the roster. Brandon said he likes settling into a nine man rotation. Generally, if you have 11, 11 guys ready to play right, right now with, with Mason on the, on the bench with the injury. Well, that leaves someone. And I would have expected probably Jeremiah Davenport coming into the season. And I think that was probably because I was overlooking how valuable his energy and length is um, right now. It's been Zach Harvey. And I think that's going to be something to kind of keep an eye on all season. Cause that's where, I mean, that can, that's a chemistry thing. That's a, that's a frustration thing. That's a getting, getting eyes for another program thing. It'll be interesting to watch. Here's what I think we know, though. Against Lipscomb, when the Bearcats started 0 for 10 from 3, the first guy off the bench was Gabe Madsen, who's the best shooter on the team. Gabe didn't play against Xavier. Um, you know, that that take that in and of itself. You know, I think that shows that it's going to, again, be very matchup and very role and very game-specific in who does what. That's the advantage of having a deep team as well. You can call upon a guy who's your best shooter when you need a 3, you can call upon a more versatile player in Zach Harvey when that's what you need. You can call upon a spark plug when, like Jeremiah Davenport when that's what you need. You can, you can kind of mix and match, and I think that's what John, what John Brandon's plan is as he's still learning his rotation. So have you had a chance to look into – am I saying the name right? Furham? Furman. 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 Furham, Furham, Furman. Have you looked into uh, Furman yet uh, with regard to what they're doing? Because you, you, you'd be surprised. I, I kind of lean on Ken Palm rankings – Ken Palm has them one spot lower than the Bearcats. Hummer and I, you're stunned to see it. Like we were, we talked about it live on the pod saying, all right, we got Furman. Maybe every guy's going to get in the game. And sure enough, you see what they've done to teams lately. Not, not the best competition, but 
They're blowing it out of the water offensively so far. Kind of two two different. I have looked into Furman, and we can have that conversation breaking them down. But they have played some awful teams and awful. two division two teams. Um, so that really can skew your Ken Palm ranking and where Furman ranks this year. Their offensive efficiency that clearly um, skews what we're seeing. But look at their track record. I mean, last season they were one of the ten best uh, mid low major teams in the country. Um, they were a top 100 team on defense and on offense. When I looked at this team in the preseason, when you see schedule, I saw a team that returned five and six best players and had two big wings who were double-digit scorers, six, seven, and six, eight. Um, then when I checked back in on them yesterday, I said, wait, they had a guard who was their sixth man last year who's averaging 21 a game right now on ridiculous efficiency. So that changes the calculus um, of what Furman's going to be. We're going to learn a lot about David Julius and Mike Adams-Woods in that matchup, we're going to learn about Keith Williams having to defend a bigger player. We're going to learn about uh, Rapolis Ivanowskis getting to, to work on a smaller player more, where he'll have more of an advantage. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think he in this matchup specifically could play a bigger role. It's going to be another game where Chris Vogue will have an opportunity to do some of the things we discussed earlier. Firm is a good team, and, you know, they're the favorites in their conference. I think, aside from Xavier, every team you see will be playing over this four game stretch is the favorites in their conference. And you can't take those teams lightly. Yeah, it looks like with Furman, it, it looks like they, they have some shooters around the perimeter that we'll have to watch out for, um, as well as some other guys who can who are nationally ranked. You know, they've actually had some four games to play. And I did look it up. Two of those opponents were unranked on on Ken Palm. So, I mean, there'd be two. Oh. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty telling. But still, uh, looks like that's something that we're going to have to defend against. So I think it's going to be a – it's going to be a fun game to watch. I still stand by my projection that we will see more people play this game. <laughs> well, that's lightning up. You said every single scholarship player just to, to hold you accountable. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to walk it back. That's what it's called. Walking. Something back. you said was interesting though, Charlie, which is, is that Rapalus guarding a smaller, a smaller uh, player faster. If this is a team that's smaller and more rain, it, you know, kind of flies up and down the court, plays small ball, the only way to keep Rapalus and vote on the, t- on the court together is if they're punishing them down low offensively, be it on the boards or just scoring points, getting that easy bucket, because they're not going to be able to defend a team like that. Uh, the two of them on the court at the same time. Yeah. I think Rap's a very interesting player. He was the hub, the focus, the alpha and the Omega when he was at Colgate. And we've seen him do some of that so far. You see, we've seen him pop out threes, We've seen him do what he does best, which is kind of operating from the elbow and finding creative shot angles almost. Um, he's done some of that. But, um, you know, heading into the, you know, before the season, I heard that rap was a piece that potentially could unlock the offense. You know, what his spacing does for Vogue, what his ability to be a threat as a forward does in terms of the matchups, which could open things up for Keith Williams. His ability as a screener, what that could do for the guards. He has a lot of value. And we've seen some of that, I think, He's due to have a big game, and Lips or uh, Furman could be that opportunity. Yeah, I'm desperate to see more Rapalus at the five, kind of as the as the Swiss Army knife offensively, putting less pressure on him defensively, and putting in a, a more more Davenport, Mamadou, Tari, anyone who can kind of play off of him a little bit easier, put some more athleticism on the court. I think that's a way to unlock Rapalus's offensive skill set while improving our defense, because I'm just, I'm very, very, very down on the Rapalus vote pairing defensively, but 
Uh, understand the decision because, again, I think it's a rebounding decision. Uh, I, I'll say this as well. I got a ton of respect for Rap. He, I'm um, paraphrasing the quote, but he said, defensively, that's not what I was known for heading into UC. So it's not like putting Rap at the five is this be-all, end-all. No. Um, that could fix UC's defense. You know, and Vogue's, I said, one of UC's best three players. So. Oh, no, no. It's it's not about it's not about Rapalus being some awesome defensive yeah. player at the five. It's that it's easier to hide him if he's playing and matched up against a, a player of his size and and uh, speed, right? So if he's guarding a slower player, I think it makes his life a little bit easier. Um, I, I mean, he's certainly as good as Vogue defensively given that votes not very good in that spec and then i would also just push back on vote being the third best player on the team i think rapalis is probably uh higher on that pecking order and there's guys who well i mean we'll see it's kind of honestly after DeJulius and keith williams i think it's a lot of guys who are kind of at the same level and it's brandon playing with the the lineups to to maximize their abilities a couple of those shots rap took against xavier they go down we're having a completely different conversation you know about his we we haven't seen him as a bearcat making three pointers at the at the rate that he made him with colgate you know so i think as the season goes we're just going to see different looks from these players rap starts hitting those threes he starts commanding respect it's going to open up vote more especially on that pick and roll that they seem to love to play right now and you know they we saw it work a couple kinds of times against xavier and you want to see more of that. I think you also do need to see more of Rappalus getting the ball at, at the elbow as well. So, I mean, there's going to be a lot of stuff I think we're going to see. I'm hoping that Furman is one of those games where we get to see a lot of this in action. We're, I, we just, I feel like us as Bearcat fans have been sitting here waiting for this. And you, you alluded to this last week, Coomer, Sunday. We want to see the offense click. It's, it's been exciting to watch them move the ball around, but we haven't, see, we haven't seen a game where it just clicked and it exploded off the page the way we know it can. Tennessee got back on the court tonight. That's the Bearcats matchup on Saturday. Um, assuming that COVID kind of stays under control for both programs. Uh, they don't up, hang out with the football players. They ended up, they ended up winning tonight against Colorado 56, 47, not going to spend any time previewing that. Cause again, um, one thing at a time, but Charlie, any last uh, parting shots here for the folks who are listening to this? I think we covered it. I think we covered it. I agree. I think we covered a lot of ground. I think a lot of people are going to bed a little upset, but we'll wake up tomorrow, get ready for the basketball game. I'm looking forward to seeing the Bearcats try and bounce back from that Xavier game. I'm I love happier. the 5 p.m. start time. <laughs> you what? I love the 5 p.m. start time. 5 p.m. start time is tough for a dude with two kids. I got to say, like, I got to, I'm already starting to think about what movie am I turning on at five o'clock? Like, what are they watching? Are they watching Frozen? Another? Is it Ratatouille? Is it Frozen? Is it Moana? I don't know. It's going to be Frozen. (laughs) Anyway, enough about my bad parents. Space Jam. Charlie, put on Space Jam. (laughs) (laughs) Charlie, we appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for joining the Cincy Slang and Bearcat podcast. No problem.